Death will come to us all. This is certain. And yet, there seems to be so much stigma, taboo, fear and difficulty surrounding this inevitable part of life. I'm Sultram, and this is What About Death? Everything you wanted to know about death, but were afraid to ask. Thank you for listening to What About Death podcast, brought to you by karuna.org.au. As you enjoyed today's episode, we would love it if you could follow, subscribe, and give us a star rating, hopefully five stars. We will be posting new episodes every two weeks, so be sure to check back and let your friends and family know where they can find us too. In today's episode of What About Death, Dr. Chris Kevorkian from Washington State in the USA joins me for part one of a two-part series where she explains why we humans often experience grief reactions to the death of ecosystems and to the disconnection and relational loss we are feeling for our natural world. She also explains her research of the southern resident orca whale and how they are working hard to try and prevent their extinction. So in today's episode, I'm delighted to be speaking with Dr. Chris Kevorkian, who holds a doctoral degree in thanatology, which is the study or science of death, dying and bereavement. Dr. Kevorkian has combined her passion for thanatology with her love of whales and the environment through her research on environmental and ecological grief. So I really want to welcome you to the What About Death podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to be able to speak with you. So my very first question to all of my guests, Doctor, is what is your first recollection, memory or experience of death? Good question. I think it's an interesting one because uh, I think my first memory actually is more on the line of genocide because my family is Armenian and my grandfather was a a survivor of the Armenian genocide. Mm -hmm. And as I was growing up, that was something that was uh, discussed quite often between the two of us. He was pretty much my mentor. I was like his protege and we spoke an awful lot about the genocide as well as the death of my grandmother, who died two years before I was born. So I think those two combined were pretty much my first introductions to death and dying. Mm. And quite um, intense introductions, really. Yeah, genocide is something that it's stuck with me. Obviously, it's part of my DNA. And it's interesting that I'm struggling talking about it with you right now. I haven't had that reaction before, so... Um, I don't know why it's coming up so hard. I, I think I just recently heard some people speaking about genocide in a totally different context. And I think that's still kind of shocking to me how people are using the term um, without quite understanding the just the intensity of it. Yes, yes, I understand. Well, thank you for sharing that. But we're here to talk today about your interest in thanatology and in uh, ecological grief, and we'll talk more about that shortly. But I'm interested to know what exactly is a climate thanatologist? So 
I decided to call myself a climate thanatologist because I kept seeing people referring to themselves as climate psychologists or climate psychiatrists. And given my background, it just seemed to fit. I am certainly a quote unquote regular thanatologist. I have the degrees in the background for it. But given the uh, work that I've done with environmental grief and ecological grief, I thought that it seemed appropriate to throw in climate thanatologist. And so where did your interest in thanatology come from? Uh, It came from having worked in hospice. I worked as an intern. I was an intern in my undergraduate program, uh, getting my bachelor's degree in social work. And in your senior year, you have to perform an internship. And one of my professors didn't necessarily suggest. He basically said, you're going to hospice. And I didn't know what hospice was at the time. Thankfully, my family had never had to use their services. So I went uh, trusting in my professor as I did and found that I just absolutely fell in love with it. I couldn't believe how comfortable I felt and how honored and privileged I felt to be able to be with people who were facing the end of life. It's the complete unknown. And to be able to witness people so gracefully looking death in the face and and walking towards death was just, it was amazing to me. And I thought, okay, that's it. This is what I want to do when I grow up. And so I pursued a master's degree in social work. And while I was working in hospice, I discovered that so many of the physicians I worked with were just so incredibly compassionate and so loving. But there were about a handful or more that really didn't seem to communicate well with dying patients. And so I thought, you know, I'm going to pursue a PhD in thanatology in order to work um, with physicians, perhaps teaching in a medical school and helping them understand how to better communicate with the dying. Unfortunately, that didn't happen because at the same time, I don't know if you remember Dr. Jack Kevorkian, who was a physician-assisted suicide doctor at the time, who was in the news quite often. And a lot of people in the medical world were not fans of his and automatically assumed that we were related. Kevorkian actually is a rather popular name in the Armenian community, but people didn't seem to understand that. So a lot of the time I was just written off because people assumed we were were related and Mm -hmm. um, didn't really want to have uh, somebody like him working in with them. So I ended up getting into the teaching field, but it was it was interesting to see how many physicians really started looking then at, at how they were communicating with the dying. And thankfully, there have been other amazing teachers helping physicians with that to be better and communicate better and be more compassionate and empathetic to the needs of the dying. And so from there, you moved into climate and interest in uh, environmental and ecological issues. So I'm very interested, you use the terminology uh, environmental grief. So where did that term originate? Um, I actually came up with those terms. When I was in my doctoral program, one of my professors asked me what I was going to contribute to the field of thanatology. What, What new information could I contribute? And while I was looking, as I mentioned, about communicating with the dying and others, 
I got rather flustered when he <laughs> challenged me to come up with something new. And I had studied whales before I got into social work. My grandfather got me very involved in nature and whales in particular. And when I looked back at the organizations I had volunteered for and the organizations I belonged to, I found that the whales were declining. The environment was getting worse. There was more destruction. And as I was reading about all of this, thinking, well, you know, forget I won't do death and die and I'll go back to studying whales, I realized that I was experiencing grief as I was just reading about the destruction and the loss of species. And I mentioned this to my doctoral committee and said, I think I have this thing called environmental grief. And I investigated quite a lot to see, you know, who came up with it, where I could get more information about it, only to discover that I came up with it. So that was kind of interesting. And then I defined it as the grief reaction stemming from the environmental loss of ecosystems caused by natural or man-made events. So to me, that encompasses uh, loss of forests, species. Here we're dealing with the uh, loss of the southern resident orca. And then with ecological grief, it's a little bit different because it's looking at the grief reaction stemming from the disconnection and relational loss from our natural world. And I see that more of people just somehow finding themselves so disconnected from nature. And we see that when people go out and take a selfie. I, I, I teach a class on grief and loss, and I was sharing this image of a, a mob in South America that somebody had grabbed a Franciscan baby dolphin from the sea literally carried it out of the sea to take pictures with this beautiful little dolphin and didn't realize that what they were doing was killing this dolphin in order to take pictures with him or her. So to me, that's like ecological grief. It's just devastating um, mm -hmm. how we're so disconnected. I do want to talk um, in more depth about that disconnect a, a little bit later mm -hmm. um, because I think it's a really important, an important point. So you also talk about climate grief. So you've got environmental grief, uh, ecological grief and climate grief. And are, they, are there subtle differences or are there quite significant differences in, in those different types of grief? I actually don't talk too much about climate grief because my understanding is that it's very similar to or the same as environmental grief. It's just relating more to climate change. I, I see environmental grief sort of encompasses all of that anyways. They just, to me, they're the same. Somebody else may say they're different, but to me, they're the same. So then how did you start your work and your research in environmental grief? Uh, was there a catalyst? And what was the process that you have used in that research? In <laughs> the research was rather interesting because I originally thought of exploring and, and investigating everything in nature from with earth, wind, fire, and, and air, just thinking, or water, pardon me, and looking at different species within each category. And my doctoral committee said, that's really great, but you'll be in school forever. So <laughs> let's focus on one species. And I was living in Los Angeles, California, where I was born and raised. And I came up to Washington State because one of my professors was here. And it would be easier to focus on the southern resident orca. 
which is a unique population of uh, orca here that have their own culture, own language, own dialect, everything. They are so unique. And when they do meet with other orca, uh, like the transient orcas, they, they do not interact so much. They may greet one another at the most, and that's about it. But they are such a fascinating and very well-studied species. And so I was encouraged to come up here. And my research question was asking how scientists are reacting to the decline of the southern resident orca. Unfortunately, I started my research 20 years ago, and unfortunately, they're declining and we're really struggling to keep them alive because they are faced with starvation. Their preferred food choice of Chinook salmon is endangered. Uh, There's boat traffic, there's toxins in the water, there's Navy sonar exercises. Uh, Just they're, they're facing so many hurdles and people around here are doing their best to save them, but it's it's a huge struggle on everybody's part. And, and so it, that's the only part of the world that they're found? Yes. Yeah. Well they they before all the decline of, of the Chinook salmon and others, the southern residents were here for a long period of time. Typically you can spend the summers with them here. This is where they lived. And they would travel to other places from time to time for food. But there was enough food in the area to keep them here for most of the year, just traveling between Washington and British Columbia within the Salish Sea. And now, because food is so scarce for them, they're traveling uh, longer distances to find food. Unfortunately, they're very picky eaters. So (laughs) unlike the transient orcas and others who will eat mammals and and whatever they feel like the southern residents are very picky and prefer chinook salmon but humans prefer chinook as well so it's been a challenge so uh, do you actually know what the population was before and what it is now at least some sort of sense of what the numbers are historically versus now yeah so as i mentioned they're they're pretty much the most studied southern resident orca or orca We're very fortunate because there are programs in Washington State with the Center for Whale Research where Ken Balcom has been studying these orca for 40 years and Orca Network that works very closely with Center for Whale Research, educating people about the Southern residents. And so they know each resident very intimately. Ken Balcom has been studying them, as I mentioned, for 40 years plus and has tagged each one there are websites with all of their information we know births deaths everything what some of us have struggled with and scientifically obviously they've got to somehow name these southern residents and they use numbers there are three distinct pods it's jk and l pod so they'll name or give a number assign a number to one of the orca and people here assign a name and I prefer the name because the number just adds to a disconnection. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's been remarkable. And I sit back and witness not only how the scientists are feeling, but how people in various parts of Washington State and British Columbia are reacting to their decline. Because I don't know them as intimately as a lot of the people here. And I'm the first to admit that. Uh, when I go whale watching, I I just... I. I get so excited. I'm not necessarily thinking who I'm looking at, 
but just the fact that, oh my God, I get to be out here with these amazing beings mm-hmm. and in, uh, in the San Juan Islands in particular here in Washington, there are people who will go out and non-scientists, just lay people, as you might call them, who know them by their uh, saddle patch, everything, uh, their fluke, dorsal size, everything, and know them as individuals so much more than I do. And for those people, they are really, really becoming more devastated with each decline. So we're down to 74, 75 Southern residents right now. There's Tokatai, who's in the Miami Sea Aquarium, who was kidnapped here. That's what happened, is that the Southern residents, because they're located in this area, were able easily able to be captured for the uh, aquariums like SeaWorld and other aquaria in the country and around the world. Mm -hmm. And so they were basically corralled into pens. And Orca Network has an anniversary each year to commemorate the orca that were captured. And they share different stories of people who were living on Whidbey Island at the time, which is where the southern residents were captured. And people on the island could hear the whales wailing and and Mm -hmm. just crying out. And I can't imagine uh, the first time I heard one of the stories I was sobbing. I, I just can't imagine losing your child. The people capturing the orca are beating back all the adults to get the young orca, to get the babies and the adolescents. And so it's just quite devastating for everybody here. So how is that emotion managed, you know, for the for the people who are observing it, let alone those who are participating it, uh, in it, how how do they manage that emotion? It's not easy. When people ask me how how do we cope with this, you know, I, I wish I had the the sixty four thousand dollar answer for that actually, or the billion dollar answer. It's finding ways to cope with it and finding ways to adjust to all the changes and. The thing that I have found with most forms of grief is that when you're grieving, especially the loss from violence or something, you need to take action. You need to change laws. You need to do whatever you can. So, for instance, here in the U.S., people can gather together. Mothers gather together after losing children to drunk drivers. So they started Mothers Against Drunk Drivers, Mm. changed laws policies regarding drunk drivers. I encourage people to do that when it comes to the Southern residents. We're working working with the Earth Law Center to get rights of nature for the Southern resident orca, basically meaning that they should have standing in courts to defend themselves against all of these horrific crimes against them of the Navy sonar exercises and others. We would not tolerate this in human populations. So in terms of this research uh, project, how has it changed over the duration of the project in terms of your initial idea uh, versus how it's evolved now and, and how the project has, I guess, come to fruition over the years? How has it changed? Honestly, when I came up with environmental grief and started doing the research, when I interviewed scientists, they kind of looked at me funny and wondered about environmental grief and then thought, oh, my God, you put a name to this vague feeling I had. 
yeah, now I get it. Now what I'm experiencing is environmental grief. I get it. So in 2001, when I started this, people slowly but surely got it to some point, but not everybody did. So when I presented my work at a couple conferences years later, people just looked at me like (laughs) I was weird. I got shamed for it. They wondered, why would we grieve over the environment? That doesn't make any sense. So the evolution of this has been rather fascinating to, to sit back and watch because now people are talking about it in different ways. You know, they're talking about climate grief and other things, but it's, it's been interesting. But the sad thing about it is that some people are taking it to the point of we're all going to die. So, you know, there's really no point. Mm -hmm. And you and I both know, yes, we are all going to die. That's part of the life experience, but there are ways that we can manage this. Mm-hmm. and ways to appreciate what we still have today and to make change. But it's it's been interesting to see how a lot of people have co-opted the work. And I had intended, and I know this sounds so naive, but I really tried hard to keep environmental grief and ecological grief within the confines of thanatology because I didn't want it to be a disorder. I didn't want psychiatry or psychology to claim it as a disorder. I didn't want a pharmaceutical company destroying a forest in creating a drug that will say, here, we'll, you know, cure you of environmental grief. So it was rather naive, but I think it. I'm still concerned now as these forms of grief are getting out into psychology and others that people might be taking it to a different extreme. Yes. That it was intended. Do you think it's it's more pervasive these days because of our, I guess, our understanding of environmental issues? Do you think this notion of environmental grief has has become more pervasive in society? I'm not sure. I think we've been aware of environmental issues for a long time. I think that we're just hearing it more from younger people. I think younger people are are recognizing that they don't have to live within the confines that adults have, believing, you know, there's such a mental health stigma. And grief is something that, at least in the United States, is something that we do our best to suppress and ignore. So I think people are, are waking up to it a little bit more and wanting to take better care of themselves. But also, I think young people are realizing that you know, they're not getting the same world that we grew up in. And that's what the fight has been about. But it is interesting when I do speak with some environmental organizations and groups who just don't get it. And and what I really kind of chuckle at is people I approached 20 years ago to interview who didn't get this at all, who are now speaking about it like crazy. So it just, I think I appreciate that people are recognizing and understanding this a little bit more, but I also wish they didn't have to. Yes, of course. Yeah. So what are some of the signs that someone might be experiencing environmental or ecological grief? I think it's similar to grief, just in the sadness and despair that people can feel, but it's obviously associated with environmental issues or um, in my area, uh, it's interesting because even some of my friends and, and one of our local politicians is recognizing that when we drive on the highway, there's one section of 
town that has been completely clear cut in order to build houses. And I know for myself, when I drive down the highway, I consciously tell myself, don't look right, don't look right. And of course I do. And it's just devastating to see that where once were trees and forests and everybody who lived within those forests uh, are all gone to build houses. And people I know do the same thing. They'll tell themselves, don't look right. And when they do, they're just absolutely devastated. I think it's just seeing that there's just so much of it happening. I live in a small town. And so it's it's getting to be rather ridiculous how much has been just completely destroyed in order to build more for people. And then I, I understand that people have to have housing, but I want people to be aware of the fact that while we're building more, we are encroaching more on nature and all her inhabitants. And we need to connect. We are her inhabitants. We are not separate from them. And I think that's something people really struggle with. So while I am in an area where there are a lot of deer, a lot of coyotes, we have bear, I sit back and absolutely love it. I I love the fact that deer come to my front yard and will nibble and do things and be deer <laughs> and other people complain. And it's just like, whoa, wait a minute. You, you moved into their space. Don't kick them out as much. I mean, we're, we're just, William Faulkner said, you know, you're just pushing the boundaries and pushing the boundaries of nature. And that's what we continue to do. And it is this, I guess, unawareness or this, this non-recognition of our interdependence and our interconnectedness and that, you know, we see ourselves as so separate from these creatures and from the environment and it's problematic. Yeah, exactly. And, and yet people still don't seem to grasp that even during a pandemic. That's the thing that really got me is that people just don't seem to understand how much we need nature she doesn't need us to survive but we need her to survive in the next episode of what about death dr chris kevorkian continues to share her experience and insights into environmental and ecological grief and the importance and responsibility we have as human beings to cultivate a strong connection to our natural world and to educate ourselves about how important this connection is, both for we humans and for the natural world to coexist in harmony, rather than continuing this move towards more and more extinctions. Please join me for part two of this fascinating subject. Thank you for listening to What About Death podcast, brought to you by karuna.org.au. Don't forget that we have more to look forward to with new episodes dropping every two weeks. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider leaving us a star rating, hopefully five stars. And remember to follow, subscribe, and tell your friends and family about us too.